podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. So, Sarah, what's your earliest memory of somebody who was good at life? Well, it uh, depends what you mean by good at life, but I suppose it would be uh, my grandmother, who um, was with me alongside my parents from the earliest, earliest days. And she was, I mean, I come from, uh, my mother's Welsh, and so it's a real old matriarch in my family, and she was the matriarch. And so she lived with us, and she lived to a ripe old age, 93, and she's the only person I know who actually has written on her death certificate uh, died of old age, which I think is in itself quite, a, that means it's a good life. Yeah. But I mean, her life was amazing. She was so smart at school, she told me that she could do algebra at 13. And because she could do algebra at 13, that meant she, what they called matriculated. So in the Welsh villages, if you matriculated, yeah. the boys went down the mine and the girls went into service. So she went into service at 13 years old. That is crazy. That's, I mean, that's just child abuse, isn't it? Um, and so Service, she sorry, so yeah 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 I mean it's just disgusting I've got, I've got and so she always used to say to me don't anybody tell you there wasn't slavery in the UK yeah she told me you know she wouldn't tell us everything that happened to her in service but it was not a pleasant time and then somehow she made a life for herself she married Emlyn then he died really young because he had um, motor neuron disease and so, so she was sort of widowed, really young, with four kids. How then old her, was she when she was widowed? Um, well, my mother was 11 when she was widowed with four kids. Gosh. And didn't have sort of penny to her name. And then her sister, so I think her sister's husband, I think he died in the war. And then her sister died of ovarian cancer. So then she had some extra kids. But it all became sort of a wonderful thing, as in... The only people that really understand how my family works are, like, Muslim friends and sort of quite conservative Jewish friends, as in... Everybody knows everybody in my family because it was this big extended family that in, the, in my childhood all revolved around sort of two or three houses that were all sort of run by these sort of matriarchs. Wow. And my mum was at the, my nan was at the top of the family. And uh, it was this incredibly uh, sort of joyful, very loving, everybody sort of felt protected in this great big family that she'd made out of absolutely nothing. So, I mean, I think that is the definition of a good life. And then she was really, really healthy and really witty and just incredibly bright as a button till about six months before she died. Then she had a sort of quite a rapid decline. And as I say, she died at home and the doctor said, I'm going to put died of old age on a death certificate. And that was like a real lovely thing for my mum. You think, mm. that is the definition of a good life, isn't it? Yeah. What <laughs> really straightforward and just really wonderful. Yeah. But she never taught me Welsh. That's the one thing I <laughs> am annoyed at her about. Because very sadly, in the 70s when I was growing up, um, she was still of the generation where she had <laughs> all these other abuses that were thrown at these Welsh village children. Uh, they had their language literally beaten out of them at school. And the thing about the Welsh knot, you've probably heard about the Welsh knot, that is absolutely true, that there was this thing that they used to have to wear if they got their words wrong. And she told me terrible, terrible stories about how um, Welsh is, I think you call it a reflexive language, so it's mine. So if it was Welsh, you'd say, that is mine, it's mine, they're mines. And so one of the children in her class, one of her best friends, was trying to say, you know, whose shoes are those? And she was going, in English, she was going, they're mines. And she was just getting beaten and beaten and beaten. And, of course, she had no idea that it's their mine, mm. it's mine, they're mine. And so, so she didn't want to teach us Welsh. 
although I can swear a bit in Welsh. <laughs> and, uh, but that's really sad because, uh, of course, now it's a sort of the one thing that I wished that she had done was teach us all Welsh because she felt that she was sort of giving us a better chance in life by making sure that we weren't Welsh speakers. It was a really odd thing. And, you know, we were sort of living in Watford, so there wasn't a lot of point in, in learning Welsh. But also I could have got all those lovely jobs in Cardiff now, <laughs> as well yeah. as anything. And then it's sort of part of my heritage and I haven't got that. Yeah. When did you start feeling that that's something you missed? Oh, oh from the get-go, it was always like you wanted to teach us Welsh. And we used to sing, like, the odd song and do the odd bit of counting. And then we'd pick up on her swear words and achavi and all these sorts of very Welsh things. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, and I've always sort of missed it. And then I thought, well, like, I can't really go back and learn it formally. It would have been more about sort of learning it from her. But anybody that's ever had a Welsh speaker, and I'm sure this goes with other languages, like, you know, if you've got um, somebody speaking Urdu or something in the family and the rest yeah. of the family don't, is that then, then the elders always <laughs> used to have these conversations on the telephone, all in Welsh, blah, 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 blah. And then you'd hear Cliff Richard, and then blah, 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 hyster- <laughs> hysterectomy. And so you kind of knew exactly what was going on in the family yeah. because all these sort of key words, they just sort of drop them in in English. That's but you sort of get to, yeah. So, so Gwyn- Gwyneth, her name was Gwyneth Mayhews. Yeah. And she didn't even know how old she was because she wasn't baptised because her mother was too ill. And then there was this thing where you used to get fined. So they just made up... When, when her mother was well enough or her father was around, I don't know what the situation was, to get put on a birth certificate, they just made up a birthday. So she doesn't really know when her birthday is. So we don't really know how old she was, but we go for 93 because that was on the official birth certificate. That's so funny. Yeah, I love yeah. that. To live a, a life kind of uncategorised and anonymous is a rare kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it happens a lot all around the world. I mean, like in Iran, it was only, what, 80, 90 years ago that everybody had to have surnames. And that's why if you know people in Iran, there's a whole lot of people in Iran who have really strange surnames because I think there was a sort of day when somebody would turn up in the village and if you didn't have a sort of tribe name, like a posh name, they'd just make one up so it'd be like, Mrs. Likes to Sew and things like that. Which, yeah. I think, which is kind of what we always had, but ours have sort of, you know, they've had a, two or three hundred years in the sort of uh, yeah. defining, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, live in Brentwood, which was burnt wood, because they burnt a whole section of forest down to create a new town. Everything was very uh, practical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and no. Like smiths, you know, yeah. blacksmith, whatever, etc. And yeah, it's all. Yes. But over time, it becomes dignified and it becomes a, a, a something else. So like Shoreditch was sewer ditch, right? Something like that? Oh, I think yes. so. Yeah. It was, Smithfield was Smoothfield from all the sort of animal viscera on the. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it really? Yeah. Gosh. Did you ever get the impression from her what a successful life w- was? Did. Did you have that kind of discussion? Yeah, yeah, it was very clear. If you come, this is also something I have in common with certain other families. Uh, it was being a teacher. The one thing you had to do was be a teacher because they saw that as like education is the salvation, and education is the uh, it's like the, it's like the holy of holies. Forget about being a priest or a doctor. It was always about being a teacher. So I can remember my great uncle Evan John, who was like my nan, very smart, and went down the mines, I think 13, 14. Jeez. He had, yeah, I know, he had these hands, if you've ever seen a sort of Welsh miner's hands, I'm sure it's all miners, but particular type of coal in the Welsh mines, where you could see all of his um, 
veins and arteries because the coal had stained them over the years. And he used to get his hand and it was like, a, it was like really strange sort of thing to... And uh, he'd sort of grab me and goes, oh, you promised me you'll be a teacher, you'll promise me you'll be a teacher. And I wasn't, I sort of let them all down. <laughs> you are, a, there's an element though of education to what you do, isn't there? Uh, I think so, yeah. Inspiration, yeah. education. Yeah, and I suppose that was probably the most upwardly mobile, I mean, as well as the sort of whole thing about teaching and what that represents, but I think there's the whole, in their vision of where you could end up if you're a working class person, it probably yeah. seemed like the most aspirational thing if you were also a bunch of heathens, which we were, because there was the sort of chapel Welsh and then there was us lot who were the sort of splinter group, the sort of reds under the bed type Welsh, you know, who, who were all heathens. And there was a real schism in Welsh families about whether you were sort of chapel or whether you weren't sort of thing. So what were you in, in instead? Well, we just sort of, uh, we were brought up, there's this word called hoyl, um, which I'm not a Welsh speaker, but I'll do my best, hoyl in Welsh, which I was brought up with. So hoyl is a wonderful word, which I apply all the time to music. So are you familiar with the word hoyl, either of you? No. no. It's a really interesting word. So... Hoyle, it has lots and lots of different meanings, but what I was taught for it to mean was Hoyle is if you were singing in a choir and it was so moving being around everybody that you felt like you were being overtaken by something emergent and you, know, you might think that's the Holy Spirit or whatever you, whatever you want to call that thing. And so if you were singing, if you were in the church and you were singing hymns, You'd go, oh, that was really beautiful. I, I really felt the hoil today. Or, you know, if, if somebody sang a song in a folk club and it moved you to tears, you'd go, oh, so much hoil. But also it was used very pejoratively. They'd say, oh, don't go to church. It's just a load of old hoil. As in, they just play this trick on you. They oh, just the give you, yeah, yeah, they just give you all this music and they pretend it's something that it isn't. And it's just something that we all generate ourselves. But I think hoil's a really beautiful word. And I think hoil's really beautiful because it is what music does it. Yeah. It sort of binds people together and out of all the people together listening and playing, yeah. there's this thing that emerges yeah. and there's this old Renaissance idea of grace and it's exactly the same thing. It's like not something that anybody owns, it just sort of visits the yeah. room and you know it when it's there and it's sort of the thing that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, yeah. isn't it? And that's Hoyle. That's beautiful. I know I had that in Austria. My wife and I... Her grandmother had just recently passed away and we went to um, Vienna and we walked into a huge church, cathedral, I think it was. And as we walked in, they, you know they go around with the um, incense? and the, Yes, yeah. So there was this kind of like light dusting fog kind of in the air. And as we walked through, there must have been a pause as we walked in. And as we stepped forward, the entire choir just lifted up their voices. Sorry, I'm gesturing with my hand. The entire choir lifted up their voices and it just hit both of us and we burst into tears. We were like, this is, it was like walking into a film set and it was all for you. Yes. It just felt angelic and it just felt that feeling. You had the goosebump run yes, out of your yeah, body. Yeah. It was just incredible. We literally just burst into tears like yeah. crying. It was just, yeah, you can get that. I think from, um, we've had, we had um, Pablo Strong on here and he sings in the choir. And he said, you know, in the, being in the centre of all those different voices in that kind of environment and everyone paying attention purely to you, then down the, you know, down the way you've got the uh, orchestra as well. He said yeah. it's, it's another world experience. Um, it definitely needs its own word. Yeah, yeah. And I had Hoyle the other day. It's a very rare thing of a musician to think, oh, I, I, got, I had Hoyle today. But I was performing at this festival called Supernormal. And the weirdest thing happened. I was performing in the barn, which is beautiful old really ancient, ancient 
looks like it could be 15th century barn. And um, it probably isn't, but it looks it anyway. And uh, I was playing the recorder, and I was playing this piece I do called uh, You Taught Me How to See the Crows, which is about sort of birds, like one bird arriving, and then another, and then another. And as I was performing, all these swallows came out of nowhere from the roof of the barn and started to tweet and then started to swoop around me while I was playing. Somebody caught it on camera, I think. And I thought, oh, my God. And they were literally duetting with the recorder. And I thought, this has never happened before and it's never going to happen again. Yeah. And actually, yeah... (laughs) friends were in the audience and they said oh I said we were in tears and I said well I was as well I said I wasn't expecting that and it was like I had a sort of a a, like another musician on the stage and it was this swallow particular one that was sort of going that's awesome that was foil yeah that's definitely yeah yeah. that sounds like supernatural yeah as well it is yes it does although although it is what the recorder was for the recorder was funnily enough was always a luring instrument for birds that's what it was originally for Ah, what a beckon yeah, so record means to sing, a, so accordion is heart, record again from the heart. And the word record was a sort of bird lurer's term for when a bird learns its song and can recite it by heart. They sort of learn it culturally from the other birds. And that's called, so the bird has learnt to record. And then a recorder, as in the tweet, tweety instrument that I was playing the other day, that is often used in imitation of birds and then that's what a tape recorder is a tape recorder yeah or whatever type recorder is a thing that captures something by heart and actually i've done some work on that the earliest sound recording devices were actually birds so people had birds in their home and used to teach them popular tunes with a recorder there's in the tweeting instrument every day until they learned it and then when their friends came over instead of having an ipod They'd sort of lift the cover off the bird, and then the bird would play the popular, sing the popular tune because it would think it was dawn, and then put the cover back on again. Oh my god! So there's so this weird good. connection between bird luring and sort of bird song, and places like Finchley where they used to sort of lure the finches and all of that, and then the recorder, the instrument I play, and then recording today. So that word goes right back to sort of our association with birds, which is what was happening the other day, which is why it was like such a wow moment because. I've sort of worked on stuff to do with humans and birds interacting, but I've never actually had it happen like that in the room. It was the weirdest thing. That's so fantastic. Yeah. I've just remembered another Welsh word that I learned, and I'm going to really cut this up, but is it hirith? Or hirith. Hirith. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, a beautiful a, word. Yeah, yeah, the sort of longing for home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was described to me uh, as an elastic band around your heart, your central column, and the more you move from the centre of where you grew up, the tighter it becomes and the, and the more yeah, the more the longing there. It's not homesickness, it's something more, right? Yeah, is yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's how I understand it, yes. It's like, it is like a piece of elastic, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I know exactly what you mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only um, Welsh I've ever picked up is from Ellis James, the comedian. Do you know him? No, 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 no. He's, he was um, on XFM or Radio X with John Robbins. And he, I've learned from, you know, they used to do a, um, a regular a weekly show that he does a lot of comedy in Welsh. And there's, you know, it's, a, it's very much alive, even though uh-huh. the language, it feels like less people every year are learning it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still very much alive and, and, and people engage with it. And that's interesting, isn't it? That, um, well, I think they're teaching it in schools, aren't they? Which is good. That keeps it alive. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is that I'm just of the generation before all of that, where, you know, 
and obviously in Watford it wasn't like I was in Cardiff or anything yeah I mean it's fascinating that because it is a big part of her that language disappearing yeah do you think you wouldn't learn it then I'm not very I'm not that I'm not the fastest at picking up languages and I think with a language you have to be speaking it so you'd have to be in a situation where you were speaking it day in day out wouldn't you you could do a you know stand-up gig (laughs) what's it called a a walk-on one you know so uh, sorry I'm interrupting do you want to ask a question um I guess I'd just be interested to know in do you have a kind of a daily practice or a mantra that you kind of stick to day in day out is there uh, no. <laughs> no. No, no, I'm what I call a serial obsessive. So whatever I'm doing at the time, I obsess about from dawn till dusk. And then uh, and then I just do that obsessively. And then it's a new thing that I'm obsessing about. I mean, the only thing that's good is that I have a dog, Stanley. And he Stanley, does... <laughs> he just sort of... He's a recent addition. We used to have a dog. And then our lovely old dog, Dolly, died. And then... We had two or three years sort of dogless years. Mm. And then that was a bit weird because you feel a bit rootless without a dog. And the thing about a dog is that it does root you because the dog has certain needs, goes out. And it's lovely because it creates a sort of rhythm to the day and yeah. it gets rid of all your cares because, you know, it's just got this lovely sort of little pack animal in the house mm. who just doesn't give a monkeys about your work. And, yeah. <laughs> and so that's about it. But, I mean, as a musician, obviously I practice... But, you know, in the old days, it would be, you know, X number of hours, scales and arpeggios and all that. But these days, I just practice according to need. So I just sort of do um, very naughty sort of intensive practice for weeks and weeks on one instrument and then put that one down for a bit and then do intensive practice on another. Do the ends come naturally or do you feel like you're abandoning it? The end of your kind of engagement for, of, of, of obsession. Does it feel like oh, you have to abandon? Oh, you know, it feels it? horrible. Like because I was talking to a, a friend of mine, uh, Richard, the director, about this. I find it really strange because you do a project like a theatre project, and it's a team of people, like what they call the creative team, as well as the actors, who are also creative, but for some reason they're not called the creative team. And so you know, you've got the choreographer, the costume designer, the set designer, me as the composer, you know and the director, and I've probably forgotten somebody, but I can't remember. And uh, you're all working, like you're literally getting up at, I'm cleaning my teeth at 7.30 and I get a bing bong from Richard, he sort of something, or I've thought something and texted him. Then you work from 10 a.m. right through till late. Then overnight, you're like fixing cues and deciding what to do the next day. And this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you really do sort of start to feel like a sort of weird dysfunctional family. (laughs) And then the show opens and then you, the actors stay in the show, obviously, but the creative team, we're all just sort of scattered to the four winds. And it is a really strange feeling, and I don't do that much theatre. And for me, it feels very strange, that end of thing. Um, but the people that work exclusively in theatre, they're having that process three or four times a year. And I find it... I think it's very unhealthy, actually. I don't think it's a very healthy way to live because you sort of invest all this sort of emotional energy in an idea and in a team of people, and then it just sort of dissipates mm. that's filmmaking as well isn't it yeah yeah well filmmaking i've just made my first I've made my i've made my first create composed i think is the word composed my first feature film score i literally saw the cast and crew recording about a week ago and that was even weirder because there you're not even in the same room as everybody sort of picking the bones over it you have odd meetings yeah. with the director and she has all her ideas and everything and a few meetings with the sound designer um, but most of the time, you're like a sort of human mollusk just sort of sitting in the office <laughs> working on music. And I've decided that if I do another, I have to have a more physical thing alongside it, like 
an exercise regime or make sure I've got it, it's cutting in the same time as I'm doing some live shows because live shows are the exact opposite because I've got my little sort of team like my, I play solo but I've got sort of trusted friends and fellow musicians that I play with and we play with each other for years and years on and off so I might do a gig with Stephen one week and Sarah Gabriel the singer another week or both of them another week and that's a sort of continuing relationship as yeah. it is with theatre I mean I've worked with Richard a few times now and you know we sort of consider each other friends and so it doesn't sort of completely fizzle but there is something a bit I just think sort of emotionally very unhealthy about that continuing arc. Mm. It's interesting, though, because in a way you kind of work on a on a instrument, work on what that's needed, and then you leave that and go somewhere else. But do you prefer continuity in your personal relationships? Yeah, I think everybody does, don't they? <laughs> I think everybody does. I think uh, that's... Yeah, and I think you sort of feel bomb-proof like that, you know. Yeah. If I'm doing a concert with Stephen and something, and we've had some really weird things happen in concerts, <laughs> and it's just like, it, you just sort of notch it up to experience, and then you've got somebody to pick the bones out of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, actually, the weirdest one was uh, in Bath, a festival in Bath, where we were playing in a Spiegel tent, and it was a year where the rainfall was so extreme. It was about five years ago. It was like the worst rainfall in living memory, one of those years. Yeah. And it all happened on one day in Bath and it all came down and in the middle of the gig, all the electrics went and then ducks started swimming down, like like the gangway between the chairs became a river and halfway through, and then like ducks was like waddling down the gangway. That's so funny. And then and then all the, then all the electricity came on, but everything, all my equipment had blown because something had happened. Yeah. So they took some sort of... I'd have, you know, what do you call it, spike, and I hadn't put one of my uh, on protectors a, in. Yeah, of course, on a um, surge protector. Yeah, I hadn't put a surge protector in. And then uh, we started to get back into it, and we thought, oh, we finally got back into this gig again. And then in the middle of the set, a bloke came up onto the stage, took my microphone off me, and said, <laughs> if anybody's parked a Vauxhall Viva outside, no. could they move it, because it's in the way... <laughs> Could you work that into the lyrics? Well, nothing we could do. Just that just went down as the possibly the worst gig ever. <laughs> That's terrible. That's, yeah, yeah. So, but then when you're with somebody else, you can sort of exactly, but not you know. You're more bomb-proof, like you said. Of, yeah, of all yeah. Because you know each other, and you can rely on each other, and you know each other's foibles, and you know. Yeah, and um, the word success is a bit of a, a a weird one. People, I think it's changed for me over the years of what it actually means, but. Has your success and your, I say, it's usually the word happiness, it's not the best word to use, but has success and happiness run concurrently for you? Well, I don't know. Well, see, your success, that feels a bit strange because I don't ever think I've ever got to where, you know, I always think I'm always moving to the next thing. So I yeah. don't know what that means. I think it's very important not to have your identity too wrapped up in what you do. So in a long, in a short-term way, it does. So if you do a bad gig, like that one I just described, (laughs) (laughs) um, you feel like the lowest form of life on earth the next day. You think, I'll never, I used to be able to do this. I'll never be able to do this again. I'm just completely rubbish human. And then you remember, oh, no, it was just a bad gig. And then you just get on with your life. And then very importantly, you have to then sort of get back in the saddle and do another one or another project and hope that goes well. Yeah. And, and learn from what you, what went wrong, uh, which in that case was to always bring the surge protect. Um, <laughs> and if anyone tr- looks like they're getting off into the stage, yeah, yeah, just no. back them off, yeah, Sit yeah, back yeah, down. yeah. And um, 
And uh, so, yeah. I but don't, that's I live they... music. I want to interrupt and say that's live music. Yeah. Also recorded music as well. Does yeah. that give you, when you've worked on a project, whether you collaborated or whether it was something you owned, once you've got a piece of final recorded music yeah. and it's been mixed and mastered, whatever. Yeah. It, does that give you a sense of a step up or is it just another oh, well, thing that surrounds you? When I do, I don't make that many live record, um, that many studio, record, studio recordings because I'm very much about the live performance. But I have made a couple of, maybe three albums and then I've been on other people's albums. And actually, whenever I make a live recording, I always think it's the worst thing I've ever made and I don't want <laughs> to give it to anybody and I never publicise it. And then after about a month, if I get some people say, oh, that was good, then I think, oh, actually, maybe it was all right. And so um, I'm very screwed up about my live stuff and my recorded stuff. And I think it's because I can't micromanage it as people are hearing it. It's sort of, it's there and it's sort of in concrete and all the mistakes are there and you can't fix them. Yeah. Like when you're performing, you sort of see the whites of people's eyes and you're constantly yeah, calibrating yeah. what you're doing to sort of... It's a feeling the vibration, yeah, the sort of vibration between you and them in the room. And you don't get that on a recording, and I find that really alien, and I still haven't quite got to grips with it. Having said that, I do love the sort of fact that I can be a complete control freak in a recording and get it exactly how I want it. And I have to sort of stop myself from over-polishing and sort of taking the life out of it, actually. That's what I have to do. Yeah, taking the life out, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you think then you're... you're so like, are you saying you're better suited to the engagement of live... I think um, I think I need to bring some of that into my life, into my recordings. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But So I think it's a really interesting uh, comment there about um, not tying your identity up in your work. But we all do it, but it's very important not to. What about... And that has, Stanley the dog helps. <laughs> exactly. I love yeah, that. Yeah. And also something to take care of. Yeah, yeah. It, it and, frees and my your other mind. Colin, I should point out, who is, who is not a musician, and I think that's really healthy. He's a musician, but he's not a perform he's not a professional musician and that's really healthy that he just thinks it's all quite amusing when I go to these sort of strange um festivals and things and so it's sort of somebody to sort of um decompress with who yes doesn't think any of it's as important as it feels at the time yeah I've got that with my wife as well <laughs> she, every now and again I'll hear that sounds good but a majority you know that's in the minority and when I'm finished with that I can be very happy with myself but she's like, yeah, I'm happy for you for the moment, but let's now watch this documentary or let's yeah. now go and do this, you know, thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's great to have somebody who's not as caught up in the details as you are or the process or the instruments, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's although really healthy. he's a very good listener and he's, a, he's, really, he's got sort of encyclopedic knowledge of music, mm. but what it isn't, he's just not on that whole circuit or the musician circuit and all yeah. of that, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so do you, you have your work, do you have your hobbies as well? Uh, well, that's kind of one of the same, yeah. really. It's just like a sort of... Um, a, yeah. a paste of yeah, constant yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's can divide the two, really. I don't really switch off. I'm uh, always thinking about sound and music, yeah. So Yeah, so the music is the solution to you not switching off, not being able to switch off. That, that dialogue that's generated from your head or that... That, that constant stream of ideas or... Yeah. That's then solved by practising music. Yeah, like sitting at the piano. I love just sitting at the piano and just playing something just for fun and listening to music, yeah. And um, I'm always scheming. and I probably come up with ten schemes for everything that I actually do because I'm one of these people that I, I don't switch off. I'm always coming up with ideas. That's and great. then only see sort of one in ten of them through, if that even. I'm always coming up with ideas. I just can't stop. 
It's got very, almost like a neurotic mind. It's just constantly, constantly going. How do you keep your mental health in check? Well, I think Stanley the dog. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, for instance, I was really, really burnt out about a month ago. And that was, you know, you didn't need to be a rocket side to see why, because I'd done a massive theatre show and then a film score and then an album and then a tour and I'd moved house. Oh. Yeah, all in the space of about six months. Wow, six months. Yeah, it was crazy. And uh, so I've just taken some time off. I think it's just about recognising that um, you're burnt out and that it's perfectly all right to have a week off, so or two weeks off, actually. And so I've, I found it really difficult to sit on the settee and think, I'm not doing anything today. I'm sure I'm meant to be doing something, but actually it's felt very good. And moving house has been great because it's very physical work, mm-hmm. but it's, um, it's not sort of brain work in the same way. So yeah. like the physical act of unpacking and painting and all of that. Yeah. And going for long walks, I absolutely love. I'm one of these people that I love walking around London. Yeah. So the summer's a bit tricky when it's really hot. I'm, I'm happiest in the autumn because I like to walk for. I mean, I do a lot of thinking when I'm walking, so I yeah. just walk for hours and hours and hours. We do that at today at work. Yeah. We um, we get everyone together, like about nine of us, and we'll go for a walk to Brick Lane and mm. do a big loop around. Yeah. And yeah, you know, some people will be talking, some will just be walking around if it's you know, nice weather like it is today. But I think that process of just, I think as human beings, if you think back to when we were in roving kind of tribes, moving along, gathering fruits and nuts, and then, you know, moving on to the next pasture and instead of sitting down and farming it, then um, that's a very natural state for us to be in of just yeah. constant travel. Yeah. I think it taps into that. You know. It does, yeah, yeah. And then I think friends are very important. So just being, I've, you know, just being having honest friends where you can say honestly to your friends, oh, it's being really rubbish, I can't keep up with all it all today. And then just sort of, yeah, having friends who understand, who can unpack it for you, you know? That's really good. Yeah. I'm going to just ask a direct question because I'm interested in this. Do you feel a sense of guilt and shame <laughs> if you stop working? Anxiety. Um, Because I've had that, well, I've been after this sort of what I would call burnout, where it was the absolute classic burnout, where I was getting through the last week of the film, as I think the director Romola was, I think we all were, by sort of just like (laughs) eating biscuits. (laughs) You know that thing, like going from sugar high to sugar. It was an absolute classic physical burnout. Um, Yeah, no, anxiety. I just feel anxious that I'm meant to be doing, I must have forgotten something. And also then my mind then, but then I get excited because then what happens is I start coming up with more ideas and then sort of like making more work for myself for the next few months. So it's an odd one. So do you, in that moment, I'm just curious, um, do you think I've just got to write this one down on my audio memo on my phone or something? I've just got to write this idea down. I've just got to nip this on the piano for two secs. Or do you go... I'll remember that flourish. I'll remember that little tune. I'll come back to it. How do you actually? I've got a big green book at home, and I just Uh. keep writing in the book. So it's just like a whole load of you know, like the ravings of a mad (laughs) woman. Lots and lots of little. I have it with me all the time, and it's always the same. It has to be the same shape book, and I just always, always scribbling in it. Fill it. Yeah, yeah. Is and it, then I've got them going back years, and I never go back into them. I don't know why I keep them. I keep thinking there's going to be some really important phone number or something in them. <laughs> so could, are you writing notation or words? or? Oh, writing? no, it'll just be a scribbly thing. It'll just say, you know, do the thing with the violins and, and then do it retrograde, doodly do. And I'll sort of, whatever it is, and then I'll... Brilliant. Yeah. 
I guess I'd like to know, obviously considering kind of the line of work you're in and the fact that you say that you kind of, you come up with these, you're constantly thinking of ideas. Do you need silence? Is that kind of a state, do you feel kind of calm in kind of work? Yes, I absolutely love, well, it's funny, going back to my family setup, um, going back to this thing about my grandmother and the, the house setup, I am quite impervious to noise compared to a lot of people in that I can work, I can really, really focus in an incredibly um, noisy environment. And I do think that comes from my childhood. As in, there was just one big room with a telly down that end and I would be, <laughs> then there'd be some other stuff going and I would be doing my homework at the other end. I, I did have a bedroom, but for some reason I was always doing my homework down the bottom. I can't explain why that was. And so, um, so there's that. But at the same time, yeah, I absolutely, when I'm working on music, I love to have... A, what you know, like, not silence, but you know, a really low noise floor, as in like as quiet as quiet can be. And I get really, I mean, and then I can literally spend, if I'm doing something electroacoustic, I can spend hours and hours and hours going over a really small loop until I get it how I want it, like a little mm. eight second bit of music, and I'm doing little things to it. And I don't even notice how long I've spent on it. It becomes quite meditative, I think. You know, I just keep going round. And then if Colin, my other half, is in earshot of me, he goes, oh, my God, when, when are you going to do the next Because <laughs> I think it's quite a, quite a strange thing. Yeah, so I have sort of, I get, it's like, the, you know, sort of like a flow, don't they? I do, I get into these, sort of go down, I course call it like going down the rabbit hole with an idea, and then I'm just sort of d- down there working on it and working on it, yeah. That's my favourite thing. Yeah. I like that. Do you feel like the internal narrative of who you are and the reality, do they overlap well? Or do you, are they two separate spaces that... Um, so you, I, could, I honestly don't quite know what you mean by that. What so you mean, so what anyone, I think about who I am, you mean? Yeah, what you think about who you are and then uh, the reality that is perceived by everybody else. Do you think oh, that I'm overlap sure well? I'm sure they're very different, but I'm sure they are for everybody because everybody presents a version of themselves that isn't necessarily the full picture because it's all sort of form of protection, isn't it? But I would say that... Um, what. There's an awful lot in electronic music where people sort of call, do sort of like wanton obfuscation where they'll sort of call themselves things like, oh, I don't know, interior furniture and things like that and sort of create this sort of mystique around their identity. But I feel that I want to cut away all the sort of excess noise, as in all of that, and just call myself Sarah Anglis and then you sort of, sort of get me, basically. If you book me, you get me and you don't get somebody called, you know... I don't know, <laughs> electric horse prowl or whatever. Uh, you know what I mean? And so I'm very particular about that. So you're not trying to use your music in a way as another identity experiment or no, character? No, not at all, no. I mean, I think to a certain extent I do that with Hugo when I go out with Hugo, the ventriloquist dummy. And I don't go out with him so much now, but he's interesting because I, so I've sort of roboticised his head so that he um, speaks lines during the show and it's quite it's very eerie and he's sort of almost like an alter ego he can sort of say things that you'd feel a bit of a twerp saying yourself we've got a hugo like that <laughs> you know oh yeah you, know, you feel a bit of a twerp saying them yourself and and you don't just want them as a disembodied recording so he embodies things that you don't necessarily want somebody in the room to say so that's that's an interesting so aspect. you're like curb your enthusiasm type character the guy yeah who... yeah well no he sort of says mystical things and he says all sorts of things 
yeah, well, you have to meet him. <laughs> he says all sorts of things. It's very hard to explain. But he sort of points up... I mean, I'm very into this idea of... Um, I've heard it called lots of things. And the one that I liked, um, which the expression that Simon Reynolds used, is um, electrical mysticism. This idea of... Um, well, it's about looking at about how technology is like this recording technology here now. Um, you feel that they're sort of removing you from the sort of the mystical, but actually they make you reappraise the sort of human envelope, the sort of corporeal envelope, and they've led us to have some really strange thoughts about um, who we are. <laughs> it's very hard to explain, but um, it, it turns up in my music all the time. Who voices Hugo, or who gives him the content? Oh, uh, well, my other half, Colin, he's an actor, so he speaks Hugo. Oh. And sometimes I... Um, put his and that is as recording yeah and sometimes i sort of re-pitch him but sometimes he just goes out more more recently just goes out as in colin's voice and then i sometimes i write the content sometimes it might be a bit of um you know a bit of words. The green book. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and sometimes a bit of words where it's all sorts sometimes it's a bit of um ancient folk song you know so he'll say like he does that really spooky one which is one of my favorite um little catches in sort of English sort of nursery rhyme, you know, farewell stick. It's really creepy. It sort of goes, it's about child death and it just goes, a, it just goes, farewell stick, farewell stone, farewell to the maidens all, farewell to the nurse who gave us suck and down the tears do fall. And it's like, it's like this ancient, ancient bit of English verse that we just sort of put in when we have certain things happening in certain songs. And that everybody in the room sort of implicitly knows that that's like really ancient and really spooky. And so he'll say that. And when he says it, it's like the whole room's a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I like that idea of like, re, yeah, like revoicing sort of ancient songs and ancient rhymes that we've all got an, a primal understanding of what they mean. And they, they've, they've survived because they're, they're talking about universal sort of terrors, you know? Mm. Oh, Universal Terror. It's a great name for a band. <laughs> um, that's or a paint colour. Farrow <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and Boyle's Universal Terror. <laughs> How much do you, you need performing in your life? Oh, as a musician, I think quite a lot. Because, um, for instance, if I'm doing... If I'm away from performing for six months in a theatre situation... I do feel like I sort of lose my musical identity. It's a really odd thing. It's like it feels that then it's always sort of through sort of like a piece of gauze has come down between me and the music because I'm no longer getting that um, real-time feedback from people, the listeners. Mm. And, I, yeah, and I think I really care about the theatre, of like the physicality of how the music is presented. And that's another reason why I don't do that much recording. I do do recordings, but why I'm much, much more into the live. It's, um, it's a really hard thing to explain, but um, it's just something about the connection when you're a musician with a live audience that is so valuable. It's like you learn 100 lessons every second that you'd never learn in a recording. Yeah. yeah. Do you um, feel like a connection with your fans... Do you, do you feel like they're an in, integral part of... I, I, I don't want you to say anything that you'll regret, but um, I'm just I'm curious because I've spoken to some um, uh, successful musicians who've had the opportunity to play to, uh, you know, a large number of people and over the course of their career, and there's a whole range of answers. Some feel incredibly connected to their fans and some don't think it's for them. They say, I wrote this song for me, 
I'm playing it live. If they enjoy it, so be it. I, you know, they're, they're not kind of um, disengaged. They just, they only give them a certain amount of in, engagement, let's say. How do you feel when you um, write something? Do you oh, feel like well, it's... I mean, I wouldn't use the word fans because that sounds a bit self-aggrandising, but like listeners, people that turn up to the gigs. Audience then, audience, yeah. Audience, yeah. Well, no, I'm very interconnecting with the audience and that means an awful lot. And actually, I sort of cut my teeth as a performer in the folk club scene in places like Watford, the Pump House and places like that. And there I learnt an awful lot because you'd get, going back to these ancient folk songs that I'm slightly obsessed with, you'd get a folk song, I don't know, like... Um, well, it wouldn't be Lucy One. Lucy One's a bit of an extreme example, but just to say it was Lucy One, which is a very ancient folk song. And then you'd get the floor singer, as they used to call them, which would be like one of us would get up and just sort of stare at the floor and do that whole, this is just for me, I'm going to close my eyes and pretend you're not here thing. And w- then Would that be a solo uh, effort? or It'd be a solo effort. Yeah. That'd be somebody coming up and doing that. And then you'd get somebody really, really good, you know, like your Martin Carthy or somebody like that coming up doing the same number and they would connect with the audience and maybe they'd tell a story about they'd contextualize the song yeah. or they put a thing and I sort of and they just knew how to sell the song like really really care about the audience um from moment to moment and they were the people that everybody was like leaning into and on the mm. edge of their seat and then when I got to do when I sort of drifted into sort of electronic music there was this what I call the cult of anti-performance yeah. in electronic music. And it just leaves me cold. I, I'm just not interested in it. I understand some people are interested in it, which is the idea that I say there are two types. There's the people that don't know and don't care. And there's the people that do know that you could be performing yeah. and choose not to care. And it's the whole, I'm just going to turn up in my scruffy old T-shirt yeah. and I'm going to stare at my knobs, literally. Yes. <laughs> stare at my knobs, twiddle my knobs and pretend you're not there. Yeah. And it's all done with a bit of a... And uh, to me, I completely move away from that because I want it to feel like a sort of... I want to recapture that engagement I had when I heard Martin Carthy sing a song and tell a story beforehand or just say two little tiny, tiny words beforehand. And so I do all that and I really care about that. And then the songs are... um, I don't tend to sort of follow any sort of fashion at all. They are just sort of subjects that genuinely... um, fascinate me so I've just done a song uh, called Raven which is about um, and it makes complete sense if you hear it <laughs> if I, I just because I was doing this horror score I started reading the Edda which is um, sort of Norse ancient Norse poetry and there's a very interesting uh, cowboy in Utah who's an expert on the Edda and he does loads of translations it's really good on YouTube anyway wow yeah and he seems to be in somewhere like Utah I think it's I, I might be misrepresenting him but he's a cowboy, he's, an, he's, he's a Norse expert. Anyway, and um, so I love the idea of Odin's two ravens. So Odin had these two ravens, thought and memory, I don't know if you're... Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. slightly familiar with that, yeah. Yeah, and they sort of flew and, and they sort of knew all the fates of the world and then Odin travelled in this ship that was... Um, so they were called thought and memory in Old Norse. And he had this ship... And he'd make it invisible by making it fold it into itself like a piece of cloth. And so I was very interested in this whole idea of something. And so I thought, well, I was thinking about telecoms and thinking about how telecoms sort of know, you know, like they sort of travel the world and they know the sort of 
fate of all the men and women, like they're listening all the time, and the idea of this sort of invisible thing that travels around. And so I wrote this sort of very strange song called Raven, and it's about, can make complete sense, I think, if you hear it, it's about a sort of phone call between one person and another, and, and they kind of want to know what the other, per, you know, this person, maybe this person hasn't called, whatever, and there's this whole thing about them sort of... Um, wanting to sort of tame this person, like one of Odin's ravens, and then they're sort of, they're sort of their feelings travelling the world like these ravens and sort of folding into itself like linen. But then it also seems to be about invisible, some kind of invisible telephone communication. And to me, that makes complete sense. That sounds, and, yeah, that and, sound um, and I can't explain it, but um, I, won't, I will always put a little, I won't explain songs but I like to give little breadcrumbs so actually I don't with that one I just want to go straight for it but sometimes I'll put little breadcrumbs in between the songs just because I want to sort of I want people to be able to sort of wallow in the idea rather than spend half a song thinking well what's that about <laughs> but I don't like to be too prescriptive and yeah. I think really my audience are the sort of people that have just sort of people that listen to my stuff are just people that are interested in the sort of sounds that I make um, to be honest, most people just sort of find me accidentally. Because I don't really fit in any scene, really, It always I always seem to be the surprise act. People go, oh, and then there was this really weird surprise <laughs> act that turned up. And, you know, and, and then they may or may not like it. So... Um, were you, what were you like growing up? Were you the surprise act growing up? Uh, uh, well, I was... I was... Um, I don't know, really. Uh, I was a bit of an outsider, I think. And that's, I think, partly because... Um, I don't know, I just did, I didn't really sort of toe the line in a sort of teenage way. And I think that's because I was very, when I was about, oh God, thir- 13, I had a very strange experience with it. I became very, very ill, just some weird accident that I had as a kid yeah. that ended up with uh, sepsis or septicemia. Yeah. And um, so I had a lot of time off school and um, uh, operations and all of this. And, and then I went back to school and it was almost like that was such a big deal. And then I also had a very dear friend at school who was also just coincidentally very, very ill. She had cancer. And I think when I came back from all of that, I think it sort of, everything felt a little bit irrelevant. Mm. And I just sort of never quite, I did sort of tune into everybody, but not to the same extent again. It was a really odd thing. And I have this theory that I wonder how many other artists have had a sort of childhood trauma that made them sort of go, oh, like that and sort of pop out from the sort of rail tracks and go, oh, does it know what I mean? I always I, wonder I that. Think, I think many have. I, I've noticed amongst comedians they had an ill parent mm-hmm. quite often and so they really? they got used to reducing pain and uh, de- 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 uh, deviating from, you know, anything that was a bit too sad. Yes. So a lot of them were there to entertain and look after an ill parent or um, if one parent was absent, they, they filled a role of, of entertainer quite often. I think, not that I know Steve Coogan at all, I'd love to, but um, he grew up in a family with lots of other adopted, um, and no, what's it called, uh, foster parents. Oh, right, yeah. So his parents fostered, like, yeah, many, many, eight, eight or nine or ten. So there's always kids coming through. And the first oh, thing so... they did when the, a kid arrived was they'd be in tears, and he'd, like, laugh and joke and, and play and make them. He would have been, I guess, like, 10, 12, yeah. that type of age. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's some... I'm sure there's an element of that going on. And then uh, and the interesting thing about having blood poisoning is it's quite trippy. So I think uh. that, so I think there's quite that's probably influenced a lot of my uh, my music as well. Yeah. Uh, and in fact I've got a friend and um, she's 
basically incredibly successful at anything she turns her hand to, be it art or business or anything. But she missed a lot of school through travelling and also through an illness. Oh, right. And she came out the other side of this, uh, basically being hospital or bedridden for a year or something. And she'd missed a lot of those normal visual, verbal cues you get in relationships and kids, right? Yes. She just didn't, she wasn't in that world. So, and she was in an adult world for a lot of it. Yes. And so that's how she tended to engage in a very kind of, call it, professional but just an adult way it doesn't mean that she was like not playful in it at all she did some great great stuff in um in uh i think she studied fine art and did some digital projection projects and some fantastic stuff but she was always just quite serious about achievement right. and she threw herself into anything that she did like you said in, a, in an obsessive way of let's get through this where i remember growing up i'd lo- i mean all my friends were actors musicians um want to be comedians, whatever, um, you know, being performance DJs, but not many of them gra- grabbed their talent with both hands. They just kind of floated in and out of it. And I, I have noticed that people who have a, a, a childhood interrupted tend to take things a little bit more seriously, you know? Yeah, and I don't think it, I mean, it wasn't like a great big long trauma, but I mean, it did sort of, it had quite a profound impact. Yeah. Because it lasted and it was quite serious and... I was very, very ill for a short, well, for, for a while. And, yeah, and I think I do I do often wonder if that, um, and I'd love to know. I mean, I was thinking about Gazelle Twin. She's a very interesting woman, uh, Elizabeth Bernhold. And I think her album before last, Unflesh, I think that's about a childhood medical trauma as well. So it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think this sort of is out there. And, uh, yeah. What's your relationship with death? Oh. <laughs> Well, that's a bit of a big one, isn't it? Um, well, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, funny enough, when you talk about those uh, work things, I think they're like little rehearsals, aren't they? This idea that we're always through life having these things that feel like they're completely part of you, and then they disappear. And then another thing, and then they disappear. Yeah. And so, little yeah. Deaths. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, talking about my grandmother, I mean, that's a very healthy relationship with death. I mean, what a wonderful way to you know to be i mean i think i'm an um well i'm an atheist so i don't think that this is provisional i think you just get the one chance and sure. you've got to use it so i think I that like that provisional. yeah it's <laughs> great yeah yeah and do you think you have do you think you have used it the opportunity well um oh i don't know i think nobody knows do they you can't sort of that's can't measure it you can't measure it on one axis either can you because there's all different axes to measure that on how would you feel if you know if death came like tomorrow? <laughs> I'm a bit pissed off. <laughs> uh, I'm going to a really nice festival this weekend. <laughs> uh, but would you feel like you'd achieved some of the things you set out to do? Uh, well, no, well, funnily enough, I will never feel that because I'm always in the middle of something. So at the moment, I'm trying to finish this opera and get this opera on. Well, more to the point, get this opera to what they call full production, which is a huge undertaking that's outside my. It's not just about me writing the notes. It's yeah. about making this great big wagon appear with all, you know, all the, all the requirements to get things to full production. And so I'm always in the middle of something like that that's un, an unfinished thing. Yeah. And I've got all my instruments that I want to fix and all these other things I want to build. And, and so it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. So you I'd really be really the... boring, wouldn't it, if you think, oh, I've, I've done enough now. I can pop off. That'd be <laughs> I'm terrible. Ready now, dear. <laughs> That'd be an awful way to be. I would hate yeah. to ever feel like that. Yeah. 
When you um, have to say that was done, I guess it's different if you're recording a live event or you've performed a live event, there's a natural end to that. But when um, you're working on a piece, I'm just curious about this with artists of when they, some people say, oh, I abandon my work, I don't finish it. I just say, right, that's enough. I, that's enough. Do you, have you, um, do you struggle with that or do you think you've got a good rhythm to that? Well, some things just get abandoned anyway because theatre, that's the way it works. So music for theatre, you will work on something intensively till opening night and you keep tweaking it right through the previews and then it's set in stone and it would actually be considered bad manners for me to go back in and change it <laughs> because so many other people... Yes, have mm. co-opted um, it. Yeah, because um, if I change that, then the lighting has to change and yeah. that bit of the costume has to change and that walk-on has to change and delete it. Um, oh, in a way, that's a good feeling then, isn't it? Because you're contributing oh, something. Oh, it's a horrible feeling because you think, oh, oh, I hate that bit. I hate that bit. <laughs> and, and then Richard, the director, says, you just have to get used to that, Sarah. That's yeah. just the way it goes. When's the last time he said that to you? Oh, he says every production because like, every time we get to preview, I'm going, oh, no, oh, I hate that bit. And, uh, yeah, and then... Um, then in my own music, it never sort of ends because there's like the record. So, for instance, take a piece like Campbell Beauty, that started off as one sort of piece, and now I've got um, this instrument called clavicimbalum. So now I'll do it live with the clavicimbalum. And then last couple of sessions, I thought, oh, I'll try that with this pedal, and I'll make a little pedal that does this while I'm playing the clavicimbalum, and then it become a whole new piece. So they're just always evolving. So most of the pieces are sort of you're just hearing like a moment in time on the recording and they're always yeah. evolving. Yeah. And then some pieces, they just sort of, they just naturally wither and die because I'm not that thrilled with them. And then, and then the ones that I like, I'll just keep adding and adding to and fiddling with and changing. Yeah. If you didn't um, have music, let's say we just said you can't do that for a job and you can't be a dog walker or a long distance <laughs> walker, um, what would you think you'd like to spend your time doing? Well, I mean, in fantasy land. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd like to be a gymnast. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but I don't think I'm really, really terrible. I'm so clumsy, but I love gymnastics. I mean, that's the honest truth. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'd, I'd like to do. I think I'd like to be a writer. Mm, you are okay. yeah, obviously a writer of sorts, aren't you, in a way? Yeah, just... yeah. I mean, I'd like to write plays. In fact, I'm going to try... I've got this um, Hamlin Award this year, and it's it's... But it's three years uh, funding, if you like, just to cover my time. Unfortunately, what it doesn't cover is all the other musicians that I want to book to work with me. But, uh, uh, um, but part of that is I'm actually going to try and write my own libretto for something. So, yeah, as I'm writing it sort of thing, yeah. How long have you got to do that? Well, as long as I want, really, because it's, yeah. it's open-ended, because they give you three years funding, so you can and they let you do whatever you want with it. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I keep falling off this chair. It's ridiculous. Okay, this is again a bit of a segue. We're 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 nearly done with our time. In fact, I think we're slightly over. But I just wanted to ask this one. It sounds a bit challenging, but I am interested to know. You seem like a really nice person who has a good relationship with the world. Um, do you think humans matter? Do I think humans matter? <laughs> well, you trans depends what you mean. I mean, does humankind? If, well, if you think matter? about it, in the. Um, cosmological way probably we don't matter one jot do we and if you think about Gaia I mean I think Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis is a very sound hypothesis and sort of if you look at dynamical systems theory it seems to chime with what he was saying 
um, then the Earth may actually find its dynamically stable state that doesn't need humans at all, but keeps the other other elements of the biosphere going. So mm. actually, humans aren't don't matter one jot. If they they matter to me personally hugely mm. as mm. a member of the pack that is the human race, but uh, they probably don't matter one jot, do they? No, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I think at the moment. I think humans, I think we need to be a little bit humble, don't we, about, um, you know, as everybody knows, about the crisis that we're in, that yeah. is human-induced, yeah. Yeah, our relationship yeah. to the, the planet that we're yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the thing is, of course, we are probably the only creatures on Earth who might have the nous about how to solve it, but kind of we know how to solve it and we don't want to solve it. Yeah. Because it's too, because it requires extreme behaviour change. And the extreme cooperation as well, extreme yeah. behaviour change. Yeah, and the scariest thing about the, um, which I only re- realised, I spoke to an old friend of mine, James Dyke, he uh, he studies uh, dynamical systems in terms of the climate, including Gaia, which is Lovelock's hypothesis, and uh, he, um, he's at University of Southampton, he told me something that I was really shocked by. These predictions that they're giving us about if we do X, Y, Z you know, we'll keep it within this two degree or four degree thing. Within those predictions is the assumption that carbon capture technology will be invented. So this magic technology that doesn't exist, even the good figures assume this technology exists. That is really scary. scary. It's like magic magic machine will make it all better. Yeah, like they're thinking there'll be an emergent technology based upon a prediction that it should arrive at some point. Yeah, they've based all the predictions on the understanding that carbon capture will be here, and it's not here, and it's nowhere near here. That is really that's scary, isn't it? Thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For someone like you, Alex, who's, you know, worried about the environment yeah. and the world, I think that's just set a new tone for our discussions. That's yes. gloom. Sorry about that. God. So yeah. to end on a more positive note, <laughs> what is, what is, to speechless? is yeah. there any um, is there any kind of recommendations? Anyone listen to this podcast? Is there something you'd like somebody to read or watch or do? It could be a place to visit. Is there anything you think has given you intense joy in the last month? It could be literally anything, a good sandwich. Well, I just think walk, walk around the city. In a, in a way, mm. it doesn't have to be a grand experience. So I think a lot of people think you've got to escape where you are, that that happiness is some other place. And actually going back to the climate crisis, sometimes the most joyful thing is the simplest thing of just taking some time out and just walking and walking through your own city and looking above where the shops are, everything above. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love being surrounded by... Having said humanity doesn't matter, because it doesn't in the cosmological sense, actually I'm happiest in the city sort of being surrounded by people, surrounded by strangers, just walking and walking. Yeah. I think that's a a fantastic recommendation. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Pleasure. (laughs) Thank you.